Good morning, my name is Karen and I'll be doing our Bible reading this morning, which comes from Daniel chapter 6. It had pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, Making Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions, 
They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thanks for that, Karen. It's quite the marathon there, but good job. So good morning, everyone. My name is Ryan, and I want to welcome you to Pathway to Life Church. So this morning, we're wrapping up our three-part, three-week series on iconic Old Testament Bible stories. So week one was David and Goliath. Last week, we talked about Jonah and the whale, except we hardly talked about the whale because in the story of Jonah, it's really not the main thing. And this week, we're going to dive into the story of Daniel and the lion's den. So the past two weeks of this series, we've delved just a little deeper, gone a little further than we probably ever did in Sunday school. Now this week's going to be no different. I had some initial ideas about what this sermon might look like uh, from the outset. I can tell you now, though, this is not at all what I thought it would be. This story of Daniel, while seemingly familiar, perhaps to most of us, and straightforward, was far from it for me. There are so many ways that this passage could be taught and explained. Where I ended up landing, though, it's not where I thought I would. So, before we go too much further, though, I'd like to pray. So, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thanks for who you are and for the Bible. It's so rich and has so much of you in its pages. Would you reveal yourself to us just a little more this morning? God, we seek you and want more of you. Would you lead us and guide us as we look at the story of Daniel and the lion's den today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, we chatted about David and Goliath. We talked about how easily it can be to draw a line from David to us directly, meaning that what David did in the story is what we should do in life. The way that David trusted God, like David did, we can do anything. We could even defeat a giant. Is that all that we were to understand from that story? Is that the only uh, thing that we're to take away from it? No. No, it isn't. As we chatted about the other week, David doesn't point us to ourselves, he points us first to Christ. So Daniel and the lion's den is in some ways quite similar to the story of David and Goliath. So both stories, they appear to tell of a hero, right? Both David and Daniel, they both rely on God and God delivers them from whatever bad things they face. So like we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, that David points us to Christ we're going to look at how Daniel does this as well. 
How does Daniel point us to Christ? And what on earth does that matter to us? All that and more is coming your way. Are you ready? Let's go. So, to get a little bit of an understanding of what's happening in today's story, let's do a very brief whirlwind history lesson. Israel, God's chosen nation, were led into a land out of Egypt and they were led into that land to flourish and to grow. Israel grew and then they decided that they needed a king. God says, but I'm your king. And the people said, no, 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 we want our own king. God's like, okay, it won't work, but seeing as you insist, here is your king. So Israel has a whole bunch of kings over the many, many generations. Some are good kings who follow God and do what he wants and they lead well. Some are terrible kings. They lead the people away from God. And over time, God's people drift away from him. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them that things are not going well. And the people continue to neglect the prophet and neglect what God is saying through them. Until God finally says, fine, have it your way then. The nation of Israel is overtaken by Babylon. That's the superpower of the world at the time. Lots and lots of Israelites die. And lots and lots are taken away as captives. So here is where the book of Daniel kicks off. The people have been captured and are being taken to Babylon. Now the Bible calls this the exile. So Daniel and a few others are chosen from the crowds because they are exceptionally bright and handsome. They are to work closely with the king and his officials and Daniel succeeds in all that he does. He faithfully follows God through everything, through thick and thin. So we see in chapter 6, which Karen just read for us this morning, that Daniel has found favour with not just one king, but multiple. So Daniel has been in the king's service for some 70 years. He's seen a lot of stuff happen over the time and he's seen kings come and go of Babylon. In today's story, though, we see Daniel, that he is one of the three top dogs. He was overseeing some 120 satraps. Now, I had no idea what satraps were, so I did a bit of research. These were the people in charge of different districts or states. So another word maybe we could use is a mayor. So there's 120 different mayors and Daniel is one of three who oversee them. So Daniel oversaw these mayors and led them so well, so well in fact that the king would sought to promote him to be second in charge. Daniel was going to be sitting just beneath the king in this situation. That's a powerful position to be in. But look at the response that this gets from his workmates. They are not happy. They conspire and scheme and end up framing Daniel in some bogus law that they actually tricked the king into signing. The king does his best to get Daniel out of the predicament, but his hands are tied. So Daniel is thrown to the lions then and uh, should have most certainly died that night. But we see that he didn't. God was faithful to Daniel and saved him from the mouths of the lions. King Darius is over the moon when he discovers that Daniel survived and he proclaims to the entire nation, the text actually says, if you read it closely, it says to the entire world. So that's the entire world that the Babylonians knew at the time. Obviously, it didn't make it to Tassie, but whatever. This decree the king made went out a long way. It said that the God of Daniel had to be feared and revered. What an incredible turn of events. And to top it all off, those that were accused, those that, sorry, those that accused Daniel... They're actually fed to the lions themselves, along with their families. It sounds pretty harsh, I know, but that's what the text explicitly says. So it's estimated that Daniel, 
was around the age of 15 when he was taken captive, when the exile began, and he was in Babylon some 70 years working for the king. Now the people, the Israelite people, are eventually released from Babylon and allowed to go home. It's about here that this whole story of Daniel, the whole book of Daniel, would have been written. So just before they were released or just after they were released to go home. So that's a really rough overview of Daniel and the lines then. Let's move on. So think back just a few minutes ago with me when I posed the question, how does Daniel point to Christ? How does Daniel connect to Jesus? Remember that this guy is in Babylon some 500 years before Jesus is even born. How could it possibly be connected to, how could it possibly be connected to Jesus? Let's look at the story. There are a lot of parallels to be drawn here. Some are pretty obvious and clear, some are not so much, but let's have a look at some of them now. Let's look at the passage with me. Was Daniel innocent or guilty? Did Daniel do the wrong thing here? No. In fact, it was because of the good stuff that he did every day, day after day, is why he ends up in this position. We see his workmates, as that's basically what they are, they are super jealous of him. Daniel works hard, he's fair, and there is no corruption in him. Now, the passage actually says that he has exceptional qualities, and the king saw this and sought to promote him. His workmates devise a plan to have him stitched up, they try to pin something on him with work, but nothing sticks. What do they do then? They know that he will not compromise on his faith. That's how they seek to frame him. So we do see Jesus here, in that Jesus was innocent. Jesus had done nothing wrong and definitely did not deserve to die. The religious leaders of the day, like Daniel's workmates, saw Jesus as an upset to the establishment that they had created, they saw Jesus as a threat. And just like Daniel's workmates did, they devised a plan, they told lies, and they framed Jesus as this was the only way to get anything to stick to him. Both Daniel and Jesus were stitched up. They were convicted with lies, deceit and hate. So neither Daniel nor Jesus deserved what they were handed. Now, obviously, Daniel was still human and made mistakes, and Jesus is perfect in every way, but I think you get my point. Both were completely set up with lies and deceit, and neither of them deserved the death sentence. Another parallel to draw here is, is what was both Jesus' and Daniel's response to the situation that they were in? They prayed. Daniel knew that he was being framed. Look at verse 10. Daniel knew that the decree had passed and that his arrest was inevitable. What did he do? He prayed. What did Jesus do before his arrest? He prayed as well. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed earnestly to God. Jesus and Daniel both knew that trouble was coming their way. They didn't run away though, but instead they ran to the Father. They ran to God in prayer. Both Daniel and Jesus suffered under the control of weak leaders as well. So King Darius had his hands tied with this stupid rule that he'd just created. Both Herod and Pilate, they tried to push the Jesus problem away. They're like, I don't want to deal with it. And then it's like, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. And we actually see that Pilate, like King Darius, wanted Jesus' release. Both Pilate and Darius were swayed by the people. Both were weak leaders who cared more about looking good than doing what was right. 
Even things like the stone that was placed and sealed on the entrance of the lion's den is symbolic of the stone that was rolled across and sealed the entrance to Jesus' tomb. Both the den and the tomb were supposed to be the end of Daniel and Jesus. Both were the giant stone to seal them. However, they were both rolled away and both Daniel and Jesus came out again very much alive. Now, I could go on for a little while yet with symbolism and connections between Daniel and the lion's den and Jesus on the cross, but I think you get the idea. There are a bunch of things that allude to Jesus on the cross in today's story. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is all interesting, Ryan, but what difference does it make? Or maybe you think, this is all a little bit of a stretch to make all these parallels between two such different stories. Eh, good questions. Let's look now at the significance of what we've just done. So both Daniel and Jesus were undeserved sufferers. Neither deserved what they were handed. However, what came of both of these incidents? There was deliverance and God was glorified. So look at Daniel 6, particularly verses 25 to 27. It says this, Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves and he performs signs and wonders. In the heavens and the earth, he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. What a thing for the most powerful ruler of the most powerful nation at the time to say. We aren't told of a massive revival that happened in Babylon. We aren't told of many people coming to faith as a result of this. But what we are told is that God is glorified. So if we see God using the suffering of both Daniel and his own son Jesus to bring him glory not to mention the countless other stories in, in the Bible about suffering, would it be fair to say that God still does this? Does God still use the suffering of his people to bring glory to him, his name? I'd argue that he does. A lot of bad stuff happens in life, right? There's a lot of suffering, pain, loss, grief, even death. Do you think Daniel went to, room, to his room after hearing about this bogus law that had been made, leaping for joy? Do you think he went to his room to, to pray, basically giving himself the death, death sentence, leaping for joy, knowing that it would most likely end in him being thrown to the lions? Do you think Daniel saw the lions as a nice little holiday destination with cute fluffy cats to keep him warm? Absolutely not. This was some real trouble that Daniel faced. And remember, he was already an outsider in Babylon. His workmates actually made that really clear in verse 13. If you have a look at that with me now, they specifically call him out as Daniel, you know, the dirty exile from Judah. He was an exile. And that appeared, and he was an exile, and he appeared to have lost his home forever. He was part of a nation that appeared to have lost their God. And to now be in this position, it's hard to overstate just how bad this would have been for Daniel. I can imagine him thinking, I've been faithful to you, God, for all my life. I've served you faithfully, and now what do I get in return? My hometown, it lies in ruins. My people and my family are scattered and dead. And I'm most likely now going to die and never, ever going to be able to go home again. 
it would be pretty easy to see as God abandoning Daniel right now, wouldn't it? However, when we read these biblical stories, it can be super, super easy to gloss over these accounts. But remember, Daniel was a real person, just like you, just like me. And he had real feelings. He would have felt, he would have, sorry, he would have wrestled with doubt and asked questions like, where are you, God? What about Jesus' suffering? Again, it can be super easy to gloss over this whole thing but because maybe we've heard it a hundred times in all our life or because, you know, it's Jesus, so it's less bad for him, I guess. But look at the huge amount of suffering that Jesus went through. We won't go through all the Bible passages now, but he was deserted by his closest friends. He was arrested and flogged nearly to death. He was mocked. He was spat on. And he had to carry his own cross, the very tool used to kill him. He was nailed to it and left to die. That is an awful amount of suffering. And this is only the physical side of it. Jesus found this suffering incredibly hard. Look at his prayer before all of this happened. Jesus was literally sweating. The Bible actually says he was sweating like drops of blood. He was sweating over this. He earnestly asked God to take this cup from him. Meaning, don't let this happen, God. Take it, take it away from me. And even Jesus' comments on the cross and I say a lot about the suffering he faced. He, he yelled, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Daniel and Jesus suffered immensely. Daniel and Jesus suffered undeservedly. They both could have avoided it if they followed their own desires, but instead they chose God's plan, knowing full well the suffering that they would endure for it. What about us? When suffering comes our way, what do we do? Is our first inclination to think of God having abandoned us? Asking questions like, why me? Where are you, God? What did I do to deserve this? Now, these are pretty common responses to suffering. At least they are in my own head at times, for sure. But what about taking suffering to the next level? Are we willing, like Daniel and Jesus did, to faithfully follow God wherever this leads? even when we know that it will lead to suffering. Now, it's worth us just stopping for a second here to clear things up about the idea of, I guess, gospel suffering. Now, we can suffer for a heap of reasons, right? We live in a world full of suffering, some of which we inflict upon ourselves and some others inflict upon us. We can suffer from sickness, from a bad diet or bad life decisions. We can suffer with a lack of finances because maybe we can't be bothered getting a job or we quit, whatever. We can suffer because someone did something that we had no power over and it caused us to suffer. There are lots of things to suffer. While yes, this is hard and we certainly suffer in a lot of ways, suffering in my mind, particularly in light of this story and today's Bible passage, is suffering for the sake of the gospel. Both Jesus and Daniel suffered for the gospel. They suffered for God. They did not compromise or cave into the pressure that people put on them. They sought to be obedient to God no matter what, even with the certainty of death and suffering ahead of them. I think of stories like I just heard last week, or actually this week, sorry, about a family in South America. They're living there as missionaries and faithfully doing the work that God has set before them, only to have two of their kids killed in their bathroom at home from a gas leak. What is God doing here? I think of the book called The Heavenly Man, written by a Chinese guy, Brother Yun, I think his name is. He suffered an incredible amount for an incredibly long time at the hands of the prison guards for, for being a Christian. 
Now, there is no shortage of accounts in the Bible or in history of extreme suffering for the sake of the gospel. But to bring just a little closer to home, take it down a notch or two, we don't often experience suffering like this, to these extremes in this part of the world that we live. Now, we certainly can suffer for the gospel in Tasmania, though. Maybe you get snide remarks from workmates about your faith. Maybe they come your way. Or maybe you're excluded from certain circles of friends because you're too different or weird. Maybe you're considered too churchy or religious. Perhaps it's pressures put on you by the government as a parent or a teacher um, wanting you to fall um, fall into line with their ideas of gender. Maybe because of your convictions as a Christ follower, you refuse to take financial shortcuts with your business or you, you don't want to evade, uh, you evade, sorry, this is, I've said this backwards, or you, you, um, you pay your taxes like you should. And, and for doing so, you suffer a little bit financially. Maybe you're not going broke, but refusing to do things, um, to do these sorts of things, does actually cost you. You could make more money, even if it is legit, Yet you instead to choose to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. My point is, suffering for the gospel is what we're talking about here. Not suffering because of bad decisions that you or others made, but suffering because you desire to follow God, no matter what lies ahead. So being a Christian probably doesn't sound all that appealing, right? (laughs) A life full of suffering doesn't sound all that pleasant. To further my point, let's have just a little look at 1 Peter 4 verse 12. It says this, Dear friends, this is being written to those in the church, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. We ought not to be surprised at fiery trials or suffering that we go through for Jesus. Perhaps we should actually be surprised if we're not going through them. As a Christ follower, suffering in this life now for the gospel is all but inevitable. I'll say it again. Christianity sounds pretty appealing, right? (laughs) But there is so much more to living the Christian life than the suffering that we face on earth. Let's look once more at the story of Daniel and consequently, Jesus. Yes, they went through some immense trials and suffering. We know that. But we also know that God delivered them. And you know what was the result of their deliverance? God was glorified. Somehow in the mess and in the pain and in the suffering, God turns it to his glory. You might be thinking, well, yeah, God did deliver them, but he hasn't delivered me from my suffering yet. What about the family that I just shared about in South America whose kids just died in that gas leak? Those parents have lost their kids. They won't get them back. How can God deliver them from their suffering? They are reasonable questions and thoughts. Absolutely. There is that saying that the hindsight is 2020, meaning that when we look back, we can see all the stuff that happened and see how God brought the good out of it. I think back to like a dec- decade or so ago. Makes me feel old. But back to when Pathway was in a bit of a mess. There were a whole bunch of people left, including our pastor at the time. There was division and hurt, and Pathway went through a pretty serious time of suffering. There was some very, very candid discussions around whether or not to keep the doors open. In the midst of it all, in the midst of the suffering, it didn't look like there was much hope for, the vibrant, for a vibrant, growing, loving and encouraging church in the future. But look now. What a blessing this community is. What an incredible journey God has brought pathway on. Disunity to unity. 
threatening to close the doors, to now opening a few more at Pathway House and Pathway Shares. If in the midst of the turmoil and struggle and suffering, someone would have said that on the horizon for Pathway, that all this was on the horizon for Pathway, I doubt anyone would have believed it. Now, I could go on and on about stuff that has happened in the past, which has hurt. And quite frankly, it sucked a lot, both in my life and in the life of the church. And I think if you stop and think for yourself, you can too. But God has been faithful. And at the end of the day, he is glorified. Think about your own life, looking back at the hard times, the struggles and the suffering. With hindsight as your friend, can you not see God at work in it all? Now again, that is looking with hindsight, so it's, of course it's easier to say this stuff now. And yep, there are some things that didn't work out so well. Some of the suffering still lingers on. And it seems like God hasn't and won't deliver us from it. Now I don't want to end that sentence there though. I'll say it again with one more word in it. Some suffering lingers on. And it still seems, and it seems like God hasn't and won't deliver us from it yet. The last word is key, yet. We should suffer for the gospel as Christians. Jesus did, Daniel did, and so did countless other people in the Bible and throughout history. That much is sure. God has a way of turning the bad and the terrible, the painful, the awful, into something good. God will be glorified in and through our suffering. If a pagan king of Babylon can write the decree that he did, that we read just a little while ago, that he, he wrote that decree, declaring the goodness of God and then deliver it to the, the entire earth as they know it as a result of Daniel's suffering for the gospel? And if that Roman soldier at the cross when Jesus died can acknowledge that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, I think we can be certain that God will be glorified in our suffering for him too. God will be glorified in situations we think that he is absent. In fact, it seems that throughout history, that is where he works best. And just as Daniel and Jesus were delivered from their suffering, we can know for sure that God will deliver his children from suffering as well. Now, maybe he will deliver us from the temporal suffering, you know, the day, day in, day out, life on earth, suffering in this life from time to time. But ultimately, we can look forward to when he will deliver us once and for all at the end of time when he calls us home. So like I said earlier, a life of a Christian may not sound all that appealing to you. A life of suffering for Jesus doesn't sound all that fun. But remember, a life without Jesus has its fair share of suffering as well. It's not just Christians who suffer. However, there is a huge, huge difference between suffering as a Christ follower and suffering as your everyday average Joe Blow. Christians don't suffer alone. Nor is there suffering for nothing. We can live a life of purpose and significance. We know that there is a reason in whatever we face, be it good or bad, we know that God has it in hand. We know he loves us despite what's, despite what's going on around us and we can know that God will deliver us one day and he will be glorified all the more for it. Now I want to close off with perhaps one of my most favourite verses in the whole Bible comes from Revelation 21 verse 4 and is referring to the end of time when God himself will deliver his people once and for all. It says this, He, that's God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 
whatever suffering we face today for Jesus, whether we're on our walk with him, or wherever we are on our walk with him, we can know that just like Daniel in the lion's den and Christ crucified, God will deliver us one day. We know that our life, despite the circumstances, has purpose. And that purpose is to bring God the glory. We can confidently look forward to a deliverance from our suffering. We can confidently know that God will be praised as a result. All right, let's just pray. I'm going to finish off with prayer and a couple of things to say after that. God, you didn't ever promise a nice, pain-free life. Suffering and fiery trials will come our way. Maybe they're here now for some of us. Maybe they're just around the corner. Help us to never forget that our suffering for you is not in vain. You have a plan and a purpose, and you will be glorified in our suffering. Thanks for the comfort and assurance that you give us in the midst of it all. God, we look forward to the day that you deliver us. We look forward to the day where you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. To you, God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that just about wraps up the three-part little Old Testament mini-series that we've been going through. I hope you've learnt something. And I, have, and I hope that uh, we've all been drawn a little bit closer to God as a result of all this. So we can remember in David and Goliath, we see Jesus victorious over sin. And then in Jonah, that we sort of get this antichrist sort of figure, in that Jonah refused to give grace. But, like, but God's grace extends beyond. Like Jesus on the cross, grace and forgiveness was given. And this week we see Daniel. It shows us the undeserving suffering, the undeserved suffering that Jesus went through. It's not just these stories in the Old Testament that point us to Christ. When reading the Old Testament for yourself, think, where is Jesus in this? And that's the end. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. We have a song, I believe. And, um...